I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, We've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast where we explore the pivotal events and the figures that reshape our world. I'm Royful Brown, who we sat in Oakland in California. In today's episode, we're diving into a story of political upheaval and economic turbulence. The election of Javier Mille, the president of Argentina, is going to be the focus of our show today. This development not only signals a dramatic shift in Argentine politics, but also poses critical questions about the future direction of one of South America's largest economies. Joining me to dissect this is Daniel Schweimler, the Al Jazeera correspondent in Buenos Aires, who has been on the front lines, so to speak, witnessing Argentina's journey through its complex political and economic landscape. Argentina has long caught the eye of the world because of its high inflation and economic instability, with successive administrations grappling with boom and bust dynamics and excessive government spending. The election of Mille, a figure who stands in stark contrast to the traditional political establishment, marks a significant departure from this norm. His victory, with the promise of radical economic reform, including a bold move to dollarize the economy, has sent shockwaves through the nation and beyond. Well, supporters of the new president, Argentina, call him the madman, the wig. It's due to the floppy hair. He calls himself the lion and the anarcho-capitalist on the campaign trail. He has said that he is, his five clone dogs are his four-legged children and his best strategist, he called Pope Francis, a fellow Argentinian, a deeply Catholic country, 
a communist turd. Yeah, well, Javier Millet is his name, and he won. He won big. He won going away in the Argentinian presidential election. Really a landslide uh, election, although Millet has suggested that people should be allowed to sell their own vital organs. He's a complete libertarian. Uh, get rid of tuition-free public education, wants to replace the Argentinian peso with the U.S. dollar, end the peso, close the central bank. Uh, he's got a really ambitious agenda. The younger generation is his biggest supporter. Uh, so for more on this, let's bring in ABC News correspondent Matt Rivers. So, Matt, uh, tell us about Javier Mille. He's, he's been compared to Donald Trump and uh, Jair uh, Bolsonaro of Brazil. But he's got kind of his own, his own style, but also just the radicalism of his proposals, radical libertarianism. Uh, Daniel, it's a pleasure to have you with us. How are you today? And where are you today, sir? Thank you for having me. I'm At the moment, I'm in London. I'm in Highgate in North London. But I, I take it that primarily your home is Buenos Aires. It is. My wife is there at the moment. I've been living in Argentina on and off. Ooh, I think the first time I went there was 1986. So I've seen a fair number or fair amount of economic meltdowns, turmoil, catastrophes, frustration, riots and all the rest of it. So in many ways, the election of Javier Millet is the culmination or the latest chapter in a whole series of economic difficulties that, that Argentina's faced. So first off, for people who aren't really aware of Argentinian politics, what exactly has happened, who is he, and when does he take the reins? To uh, work backwards, he takes the reins, having won the election last Sunday, he takes the reins on December the 10th, takes over from the previous Peronists, I suppose some might label them slightly left of centre government of Alberto Fernandez, who have been in power for the last four years, or the 16 of the last 20 years. It was a brief respite when a conservative government was in office led by Mauricio Macri. But yes, that's been the party, conventional party in Argentine politics for many years, uh, since the 1940s, early 50s, uh, really, when Juan Perón. Uh, was their first pe uh, president, after whom the party has been named. So this is, as you say, a radical departure um, from traditional, or what's been deemed traditional Argentine politics, perhaps because Argentina is in a dire economic uh, and social state, and many felt it needed something radical to try to sort that out with the conventional, traditional parties not having been able to do that in the last, well, we could go back 40 years or so. So there was um, a first round of voting. In that first round of voting, it, it didn't do that well. What do you think convinced the Argentinian people from the first round of voting to the second that he should be the man to guide the, the economy? He's risen from almost nowhere after the last few years. In the last few years, he only really entered politics as a, a deputy in nineteen in twenty twenty one and wasn't doing very well in opinion polls until relatively recently. He was, as you say, the favourite in the first round back in July and ended up finishing a surprising second to his then contender in the second round, the current economic minister, Sergio Massa. The other major player in July was Patricia Woolrich, former security minister of the conventional traditional Conservative Party. She was eliminated. That left us with two candidates in the second round of elections, Javier Millet and, as I mentioned, the Sergio Massa, the Peronist eco economy minister. So it was a straight runoff. The other candidates were eliminated. You were left with a straight Massa versus Millet. And Millet was expected to be a tight race. 
The final result, he was a surprise to many, perhaps even Mr. Malay himself, when he won 56%, for more than 56% of the vote. And now there is a great debate going on among many, many Argentines. Why did he, in fact, do so well against the odds? He's unconventional. He's promising things which are very different to anything that Argentina, perhaps any country, has seen before. And now there is this kind of inquest into quite what, why Argentines voted for him in such numbers and what they now expect from him. What do you think they expect from this man with it, with this wonderful truss of hair and with his chainsaw, what do you think is the the first immediate effect when he comes into power that things are going to be different in Buenos Aires and in Argentina? I think it's fair to say whatever Argentines expect, he has polarized opinion in society. A country of forty five million or so people, certainly those I know. I think I mentioned my wife is in Argentina at the moment. She, I spoke to her last night, she's petrified of Javier Millet and what he promises to bring to the nation. Uh, Others uh, on the other side of the equation, I think first and foremost, what they're hoping for is some kind of stability in what is a wild and wacky economy. Inflation over 140% a year. Um, the, The Argentine peso against the US dollar is fading by the minute almost. I was there back in, as I say, July, August, when I think we were getting something like 600 pesos to the US dollar on the black market, which we can talk about in a little while. Now it's over a thousand. I, I looked up the figure just before we came on air and the Argen- the official Argentine peso buys for 356 against the US dollar. Unofficially, on the black market or the dollar blue as it's known colloquially, just around about a thousand. Nobody in their right minds really goes with changes on the official exchange rate. Everybody has a black market trader that they deal with and they'll trade on the black market. But that creates anxiety, instability, it's difficult to plan. So I think what many Argentines are hoping for is some kind of stability in an economy where you really have to duck and dive on a daily basis just to keep yourself afloat, whether you're rich, poor, middle class, a big earner, a minimal earner, and you're always thinking about whether you're going to have enough money to see you to the end of the month or the end of the week sometimes. So that, I think, is what many people hope from Javier Millet. The man, he is an economist. He claims to be an economist. He's been dubbed many different things, a laissez-faire capitalist and an an anarcho-capitalist. You mentioned the chainsaw earlier. He did appear on the campaign trail with a trade with a chainsaw, wielding it in the air, saying, I'm going to eliminate, chop up the central bank. I will get rid of the Argentine base. I will eliminate the kind of foundations of the Argentine economy as it exists because the country sees something new. And that struck a chord with many Argentines, even if respected economists were saying that simply won't work, things will get worse than before. Many were willing to bet on something different, anything different, to try to get themselves out of this very long-running mess. Wow. It it absolutely does sound like a mess. And if you have inflation of 142%, you understand people's anguish to want something new to happen economically and most definitely politically. So we talked about the immediate impact on kind of financial markets and specifically to do with the rate of the peso against the dollar Considering that one of the key things that Millet said he's going to do is to get rid of the central bank, what's happened basically at the central bank with the with the imminent prospect of a Millet presidency? 
hit uncertainty because he's promising, threatening, some might say something completely drastic, very different. So after his the result of the primary elections back in July, there was a, a run on the Argentine peso. That tends to be what happens in such a fragile economy that politics moves in a certain direction and there is an immediate reaction which sends people scurrying for the one certain thing in Argentine economy, which is the US dollar, if you can find them, if you can get them, which obviously raises the uh, the price of the US dollar because of the shortage. It's very simple, very basic economy, economics. And that's what every Argentine lives with, I say, on a daily basis. You ask, you can stop any 10-year-old in the street and say to them, what is the exchange rate today? And it's quite likely they'll know what it is because their parents have been talking about it. That's what you, That's what people live with on a daily basis. And, and just on that, back in the economic crisis of the early 2000s, there was talk of dollarizing the economy then, wasn't there? Or there was all pegging the peso to the dollar. Uh, remind us of that, because whilst his uh, idea to dollarize the whole economy feels pretty radical, it's not without some level of precedence in Argentinian history, is it? That's, that's exactly right. And what had happened in 1989, I, I was there then, in the days of hype. So when people think things can't get any worse, it possibly was worse in 1989. And then we were talking about peso bills of a, of a million or so, two million. And it was on the close, on the edge of collapse. Individual provinces were printing their own money. There were alternative currencies. Literally, it became a bit of a cliche after a while. But in 89, you were going, you would go for a meal, you would pay for your meal before you ate it. Because you knew by the time the coffee came, the price may well have gone up. Uh, so that's how people were living. We were negotiating wage wage supplements in the middle of the month because you knew that what you got at the beginning of the month wouldn't see you to the end. So the then president, Carlos Menem, and his notorious as he became finance minister, Domingo Cavallo, they pegged the Argentine peso uh, to the dollar, one to one. One dollar was one peso. And that sustained the economy. It brought a certain degree of stability for a few years. Uh, but the big collapse, which came at the end of 2001, beginning of 2002, that really came about because that one-to-one became un- unsustainable. It was fixed artificially. Argentina wasn't producing enough to back that up. And then we saw a, a major collapse of the economy of society, some might, might argue, where millions were plunged into poverty. The then president, Fernando de la Rua, escaped from the presidential palace on a helicopter. There were riots. Several people were killed. There were, I think it was, I, I was there at the time. I remember I had to have a list of the number of presidents in the particular week after De La Rua fled. I think it was four, perhaps five presidents in the space of the week before new president came in, Eduardo Duarte, and somehow managed to stabilize the economy briefly. So again, this is what this, what's happening now. There's chaos we're seeing at the moment. We've seen different versions, similar but to different versions of these various economic catastrophes, certainly since I've been in Argentina the late, in the late 80s. This is now the latest possible solution, as perhaps as 56% of the electorate sees it, to what has been a, a chaotic situation with occasionally moderate periods of, of some kind of stability. Let us understand the endemic reason why the Argentinian economy is weak. There have been these periodic uh, periods of relative calm and then catastrophe and with bust. But what is the endemic actual weakness that Argentina has been suffering from for 60, 70, possibly even 80 years? 
Argentina is potentially one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It should be. It has been in the past. Um, certainly in the middle of the of the twentieth uh, century, it was one of the world's greatest wheat exporters. Uh, big agricultural country. Some of the best meat in the world. Um, so it became relatively stable for a while and, and relatively affluent. Uh, what it's suffered on since is uh, massive f- uh, foreign debt. It's then encumbered by the interest payments that it has to make. When the military were in power, there's a brutal military dictatorship in power from 1976 to 83, which borrowed massively from international lenders. So those repayments, which have accrued massive interest, they have to be repaid. That's certainly a huge burden on the economy. It's also the country, I think, in the world, which has defaulted probably more than others, uh, more than any other, to international lenders. So now when it borrows money, which it must do to keep the economy afloat, it can only do so under very onerous uh, lending terms. Nobody, nobody wants to lend to Argentina. If they do, they have to make sure they cover their cover the risk factor there. So many you know, huge foreign debt, massive inflation. It becomes a bit of a vicious circle. Once you're in that problem, once you have that problem, it's very difficult to dig yourself out of it, and the situation simply gets worse and worse. They had a brief respite uh, under the previous government of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner when Argentina started producing a massive amount of soya exporting it on the world markets, that provided a certain amount of respite uh, to a struggling economy, uh, mostly to China, the United States. um, And that did buoy the economy for a while. And there was relative stability, but that was a short-term respite, uh, I say, in a long-running saga. You're listening to a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic, which is also, if I get my act together, going to be going out regularly also on YouTube. So if you are on YouTube watching this, hi and hello. If you are listening to the podcast, what you can do is now go to our new address, which is royfield.com, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D.com forward slash mid hyphen Atlantic. And you can sign up to get our newsletters and they'll also uh, give you uh, exclusive links to uh, when we record these interviews on Zoom so you can be in the audience. And what that means is that uh, you can actually ask a question. It's somewhat being part of an interactive podcast. So it's royfield.com. Go and hit podcasts and then you'll find Mid-Atlantic and you will be able to sign up for the newsletters and get the links for when these shows go live. So we've talked about the endemic kind of economic weakness that Argentina has had. But specifically, what are the policies of its new president? We talked about dollarizing the economy, but what are his other policies to help right the um, Argentinian economic ship? Well, what he said is he will not raise taxes. What he will do is drastically cut government spending. And that's what has many people concerned. Um, so that would mean subsidies to uh, for public transport, for instance, which is massively subsidised, certainly in and around Buenos Aires, where and the surrounding regions where about a third of the population live. So that's one, one of the measures. He's talked about cutting funding to public universities. Higher education in Argentina is free at the moment. That is one of the elements of Argentine society which is under threat. And then he's talked about really just opening up the economy. He was a great admirer of Carlos Menem, who was president in the 90s, who brought about this one-to-one dollar-to-peso link. He's talked about selling off whatever he can. He's even talked about a free market for prostitution, for drugs, for human organs. And he's talked about human organs being able to be sold on the open market as a way of generating income for individuals, obviously not for the state. But that's the kind of laissez-faire capitalism when they people dub that bandy that title about 
that's one of the things they're referring to, that pretty much free market economies uh, economy with as little interference uh, and involvement of the state as possible will, he believes, be the saviour for, for the Argentine economy. Is he going to be able to get this agenda through? What is the structure of the Argentinian government? And then outside of government, Argentina has really strong trade unions. Where is he going to come up against his opposition? He doesn't have a great, although he did, as we mentioned, did very well as an individual in a presidential vote, he doesn't have a great deal of support. He's really formed a new political uh, party, La Libertad Avanza, the Liberty Advances or Freedom Advances is the name of his party, which is a new entity. So he doesn't really have a great deal of support in the upper house, the Senate, or a majority in the lower house, the Congress. Uh, so he's going to have to do deals, perhaps with the established uh, Conservative Party. Uh, that's what's being negotiated at the moment. But on the ground level, he doesn't take he did exceptionally well in certain regions of Argentina, again, in the presidential vote. So it's difficult to see where some of the especially more radical policies he's talking about, what kind of support he's going to get for that. You mentioned the trade unions, very powerful, very vocal, very active on the streets of Argentina. He'll certainly have opposition from there. It's only recently that Argentina legalized abortion across the country, one of the few countries in Latin America to do so after a long running campaign. Great celebrations among the bulk of the population for that. He's threatening to eliminate, to make abortion illegal two or three years after it was legalized. So certainly opposition uh, from those who supported that. Claims to be a, a staunch Catholic, yet is very critical of the Pope, an Argentine, the fellow Argentine, who he calls a communist. <laughs> There's not many would call the Pope a communist, but Javier Malay has certainly done that. So he has upset certain sectors of Argentine society, despite this huge victory. Many are wondering why they voted for Malay. Did they vote for Malay or were they voting against the established uh, political entity? So if he doesn't impose some kind of stability very quickly on the Argentine economy, Argentine society, will he lose a lot of this, this vote? he got in the elections. So many questions are being asked about that. How strong is the support? Is it a pro-Malaise support or is it really the anti-everything else support? And again, he's going to have to act, I think, very quickly after he takes office on the 10th of December, if he's going to hold those voters, people who voted for him, uh, on his side. You talked about his relations with the Pope. What about foreign policy shifts? He has indicated a potential freeze on relations with Brazil and, and, and China, are some of Argentina's top trading partners. How will this affect that relate, those relationships, but also with its neighbours within South America, specifically Brazil? First of all, on the China-Brazil situation, again, he sees them as ideological foes. We have a left-of-centre president uh, in Brazil, Ignacio Lula da Silva. We have obviously a communist government in China. Yet, these are, are Argentina's two major trading partners. So again, the question then emerges as the people who do business, the Argentine culturalists, the economists, the entrepreneurs who do business with those two countries who make money out of those two countries with their trade relationships, are they going to want to see Malay continue to insult the two trading partners? And with a possible freeze on trading with them, are they going to want to see that? So will obstacles be put in the way if he decides to follow through with some of those promises? He's expressed his support for the United States, for Donald Trump, 
for the previous Brazilian president, the right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro. He's a big supporter of Israel, certainly in the current conflict with, with Palestine in, in Gaza. He's very firmly on the side of Israel, has talked about moving, as Donald Trump did, moving the Argentine embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So yes, his support is very much right of center. He received celebratory emails from Donald Trump, from Bolsonaro, from right-wing leaders around Europe, or Hungary, and the rest of Latin America, very much from the, from the right to the right wing, the extreme right wing, the defeated fascist candidate in the Chilean elections, sent him a, a celebrate email. So that's very much where his ideology lies. And I think for many, he's seen as a boost to the advance of these kind of libertarian right-wing policies around the world. People see him as a, as a potential ally. Uh, they see success in for their ideology in Argentina. Yeah, it's certainly been watched very closely around the world. Yet, great deal of opposition. We have a left-wing uh, government in Chile, left-wing government in Brazil, in Colombia as well. So he's in many ways a bit of an outsider in the region, but is winning support from the opposition parties, the right-wing opposition parties in those countries. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And why is why is his some of his uh, positions regarding the seventies and early eighties military dictatorship? Why they've been so controversial? That's possibly one of the most contentious issues. His his vice president is a woman by the name of Victoria Bijouroel, who has strong links with some of the former military dictators, the survivors who were still in prison, serving sentences on human rights abuses. She has talked about releasing them or certainly lessening their sentences. One of the biggest issues in Argentina still is a big shadow that hangs over the country is other 30,000 or so people who were murdered, who were kidnapped, tortured, murdered during that dictatorship. That number is often questioned by the far right in Argentina, those who supported the dictatorship. They said it was a war against a godless, godless communism and words like that have been bandied around. Yet... Uh, many Argentines are still campaigning for answers about what happens during that very dark period. They want to find out. Many people have still disappeared. They have, the bodies have not been found. 
of some of the people who disappeared during that dictatorship. There's still a march every Thursday afternoon by the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, all these are mothers who lost their children during the dictatorship, who march every Thursday afternoon outside the presidential palace calling for answers. Often people will join them with placards, the names and photographs uh, of their loved ones. Um, and so there are many campaigns. And then these Millet and his government, his supporters, have come along and questioned uh, the veracity, the accepted knowledge about what happened uh, during that period. There have been in-depth reports. There are human rights commissions in Argentina and beyond looking into those events. And this government is now questioning some of those findings. So that is really why it is caused. There are still sufferers out there who are very upset and very alarmed in many ways by the questioning of what they deem to be the truth. A couple more questions from me before we then throw this out to people in the audience. If you're in the audience and you want to ask a question, do the little hand raising icon thing and and then we'll call you up. Only fundamentally only make one point though to make sure that everybody who does want to speak has opportunity to to ask their question. This has obviously been a seismic shock to to Argentinians, to the outside world. This man is wielding a chainsaw He's calling communists scum, dirty scum, bastards and whatever. He, he doesn't exactly feel and sound presidential. Do you think that he will temper his language and his approach when he dons the presidency? Or do you think this is the unvarnished melee that we've got now that we're going to have as president of Argentina? I think we've certainly seen the unvarnished delay. I imagine he has advisors around him at the moment, training him, talking to him, trying to suppress some of these wilder comments that he comes out with. But in many ways, he rose to prominence as a television personality, an economist who appeared many hundreds of times on Argentine TV, ranting and raving and openly, violently often insulting his opponents, anybody who criticized him. So in many ways, that is a a measure of his popularity. Uh, So I would imagine in the same way that Donald Trump uh, didn't much temper uh, some of his behavior uh, in, in a similar vein, while there will be people trying to ask him to tone things down a little bit, I would imagine he probably won't when he gets into office because that's what many of his supporters will expect. They like the chainsaw. They like the ranting and the raving. They like the fact that he talks to his, he has five dogs, English Mastiffs, who he talks to on a regular basis. Apparently, some reports say that he talks to the father from which these dogs were cloned, who died a few years ago, through a mystic who will talk to the, to talk to the dog. It sounds crazy, but again, some people are saying that the situation is so drastic in Argentina. We'll accept this man, known popularly as El Loco, the madman. That in many ways is a mark of his popularity. A few years ago in other countries, it might be seen as an obstacle to taking the presidency. But in many eyes, we are seeing a a form of populist, rather eccentric, right-of-centre politics around the world. Uh, and he, in many ways, is the most extreme, latest example of that. So I don't think he will see it necessarily as, a, as an obstacle to, to his increased popularity. I'm going to show you some numbers that will haunt your dreams. Let's say you want one U.S. dollar. Simple enough, right? And you're willing to pay Canadian for it. That'll cost you about one dollar and 37 cents Canadian. But now let's pretend you're in Argentina and you want US dollars. 20 years ago, you'd have to pay the equivalent of about 294, which, you know, 
is not great, but whatever. Today, you'd have to pay, let's cross that out, around 353.82. And that's for one US dollar. But here's the nightmare. Not only are Argentines desperate to make this trade, right? This amount of money for that amount of money. They're actually willing to do it at a huge loss, paying sometimes up to three times that amount on the black market for one US dollar. Anything to ditch their local currency and put their life savings into something that will hold value a little better. Why the panic? Argentina's annual inflation rate shot up to 124% in August. That's a record high in more than three decades. The dollarization of the economy. How exactly is he going to do this? Primarily, the, you need to have a certain amount of physical dollars. Obviously, this can be done through kind of bank transfers, etc. You can nominally say that you have a dollar economy. And much smaller Latin, America, Latin American economies, El Salvador, uh, is a case in point, actually do run dollar economies. But how exactly does Mille say that he's going to implement this for a country the size of Argentina? Yeah, I mean, as you say, there are, I think, Panama and Ecuador also uh, dollarized economies. Uh, Argentina is already dollarized to a large extent. If you do any big transaction, and I'm talking houses or car vehicles, for instance, you will pay with dollars. You will go to the bank and you will get big bricks of $100 bills. And that's how you'll pay. I've been involved in these transactions myself. It feels a little bit like you're doing a drug deal. It always feels a little bit clandestine. But it's that's the currency that people trust. When I was there in July, the largest denomination peso note was 2,000. 2,000 pesos is a little under $2 at the current rate of exchange on the black market. So if you're going to change $500, you're going to be given, you're going to be handed over a huge number of Argentine pesos. You're walking out of your clandestine black market den, they're called cuevas or or caves. Um, You're walking the streets with great piles of money in your pocket, so in your bag. In the summer with temperatures around 40 degrees centigrade, and you're walking around with a big heavy coat on with lots of inside pockets, people know where you're going, where you've just been. So that makes life very difficult. So for that reason, the big transactions are done in dollars. So to that degree, yes, the, the, the dollarization has in many ways has already begun. But then you have to ask how much of Argentina's sovereignty is lost. First of all, you have you're using money with the face of a foreign president on there, in this case, Abraham Lincoln. And secondly, the US obviously has to print that money and they would have to talk to the US about the constant supply and decisions made regarding the economy. So that, for many Argentines, would signify a huge loss of sovereigns and that upsets many. He has recently, having banded around this idea of dollarization, certainly in the last days of the campaign and since he won the uh, became president-elect, he stopped talking about dollarization to the extent that he was. So many are wondering whether it is, in fact, impractical, uh, that it couldn't be implemented. Although it's an idea that many Argentines, those with dollars, fine, they'll probably survive. Those who don't have access to dollars, which is the poor working class people, where do they get their dollars from? Yes, so these are the people who are most worried, the very wealthy, the people who who travel regularly, who can get dollars, not too concerned, but many millions of Argentines are not in that situation. And then that is where much of the opposition will probably come from. It has to be said that many of those people voted for him. He had a great deal of support from young people, from working class Argentines, the people who are possibly going to be the biggest losers in his presidency. 
again, were some of the people who were his staunchest supporters. Go for it, Brian. Thanks so much. I had one quick question. Daniel, thanks so much for the interview on the Royal Field. You always get amazing guests. I really appreciate it. Um, the question here is, in regards to dollarization, I know that, if I'm not mistaken, Colombia, El Salvador, and Ecuador have all dollarized. Two of them, I believe, recently. I was kind of Panama, Panama and Ecuador. How did, do you think the dollarization of Argentina, hypothetically, do you think it would be de facto or de jour? And do you think they'd, like you mentioned, they're already accepting payments through taxation. So do you think they would keep a currency or do you think this is just a, how would I put it, wild pie in the sky theory that might be applied? I'm quite curious. And the second quick question is, do you have a theory if this relates to, obviously, Argentina historically was, I believe for a while they had the highest GDP per capita on earth at one point. And that's obviously changed quite a bit. What do you think are the policies that have led them to there? So thank you for taking both those questions. Uh, thank you. Good questions. I'll, I'll go on to the first one first, uh, if, if I may. It has, it's a, Millet has been talking about a concept, a concept of dollarization. I'm not sure that he or any members of his team have thought about the detail yet. Or if they have, they certainly haven't advertised it. The details about whether they would keep the peso alongside the dollar. There are countries in the world where that happens. I lived in Cuba for a couple of years where people have dollars. They have the, the dollar, the convertible dollar and the Cuban peso. So it wouldn't be the first time that's happened, but a very different economy, a very different country. And I'm not sure, as I say, they've gone down that road to that degree yet. They first of all had to see whether the idea would win favor with the Argentine population. It does seem to have done that. And now I imagine is the process of working out whether it is feasible uh, and whether it is possible. I've seen economists who say that it is. I've seen plenty of economists both in Argentina and beyond. The whole list of uh, world-renowned economists ask the Argentine people for adverts in newspapers around the world to say, don't vote for Malay. Things will only get worse if you implement his policies. So really, is he's a polarizing character, uh, and we've seen uh, very differing opinions from all sides. But because he's applies, uh, hoping to apply something very new uh, to the Argentine economy, we really don't know what the consequences might be. There's a lot of speculation. And it, is a huge, it would be a huge, whatever he tries would be a huge gamble. But others are saying keeping things as they are is also a gamble. Yeah, we're in a very difficult situation. Uh, thank you for that question, Briar. Guta, you've got your hand up. We're going to go Guta, Dominic, and then I believe Adam, you want to jump in. So Guta, you're up next. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Again, super Spain, so logical. And yeah, I'm interested to know how he's going to be able to really build a government base, taken that only Macri was the only non-Peronist president who managed to finish a mandate. And he does not have Buenos Aires. And uh, despite of all the voting, he does not have Buenos Aires within, which apparently was with what what helped Macri and to stay until the end of the mandate. That's one question. And the other question is in relation to Latin America and Brazil. He already confirmed he's staying the Brits. He says also he's staying in the Mercosur, which I think is a direct influence for Macri. 
but I also understand Mark is going to keep his team on the background on the first wave of his government because he thinks that a lot of ministers are going to fall fast and he would come on a second wave. And, uh, Guta, I said only one question. Rebecca, so ask the third one. You, you've got two. Daniel, answer, answer Guta's two questions. Otherwise, we're going to be here all day. No, Guta, you're right that he doesn't have uh, Buenos Aires. And Buenos Aires is key. I think I've mentioned before, something like a third of the population, 45 million or so Argentines, live either in the city of Buenos Aires or the conurbation, industrialized conurbation around the city, where the trade unions are very strong, where the Peronist party is extremely strong. Macri had the advantage. First of all, he was president of one of Argentina's most popular football clubs, Boca Juniors, in the heart of, of, Argent- of Buenos Aires. And he was the mayor. He went on to become the mayor of Buenos Aires. That's a presence, that's a dominance that Javier Malay hasn't had. He has. He did do extremely well in, in the second city of Córdoba and elsewhere. But this is something he's having to do now, having to see whether he's going to have to do deals because he has so little presence in either the upper house or the uh, lower house of Congress. And the obvious person to do deals with is Mauricio Macri. But it was Mauricio Macri's governor, uh, party that was defeated in the first round under their candidate, Patricia Bullrich. So the big question then is how much of an influence is Macri, who is an ex- now an experienced uh, ex-president with a lot of support, certainly in, in the wealthier regions of Buenos Aires, how much influence is he likely to have? How many deals can Javier Millet be seen to be doing with him? So it'll look like Macri won the election and not, uh, not Millet. It has to be seen to be his own man. Yet, he possibly needs the support of Mauricio Macri. So there's obviously a lot of Argentine politics, Latin American politics, is done behind the scenes, often around the barbecue, around the kind of famous Argentine asados, best beef in the world, they will tell you. That is where a lot of politics is done in those negotiations, which the rest of the public only gets to see when the confirmation of their deals is mentioned in the Congress. So that, again, I think it's very early to say we can only speculate about who is talking to who at the moment, what possible coalitions are being formed, and then how much Javier Millet is being advised to do deals, what Mauricio Macri has to offer him. What was the other question? What was the other question, Buta? Uh, the other one was about to build this base, right? And it's how he would finish his mandate because you have to get one third and Macri only, he doesn't get it. Yeah. So he would have to resource probably to rural governors and this way somehow break Peronismo. Yeah, I, okay, yeah, I remember now, yeah. So Peronism, despite having been defeated in these elections, 16 of the last 20 years, we've had a Peronist government. So they are, as I say, very strong within the trade union movement, which is a very powerful entity, a working class in very industrialized society, probably the most industrialized society with the largest middle class in Latin America. So that's certainly something that, although it has to be said that many of those working class voters did switch from the Peronist party to Javier Millet. Whether they will then switch back again if he doesn't deliver fairly quickly, that we're going to have to wait and see. But yes, he's certainly having to form coalitions uh, to deal with what is a very powerful entity in Argentine politics, which hasn't gone away and will be 
talking about groupings that they can form, coalitions they can form in opposition. That opposition has already started. People have already started meeting to decide how they're going to try and fight some of the more radical policies that Javier Malay has been suggesting. Dominic, it's your time to shine, sir. <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for, for having this, this conversation. I was going to ask for clarification on where the new president fits into the landscape. I've always been a little bit confused about what Perón is uh, or its many uh, faces. And you did quite answer that a bit. So I'll ask a bit about the Peronist question, but also ask it, does he have a position on the fall? Yes, I'll ask the second question first. He does. He, like the vast majority of the Argentine population, believes that the Falklands, or the Las Malvinas as they call them, should be under Argentine sovereignty. But what he said, that should be attained through diplomatic through means, through negotiation, not by sending the gunboats uh, back to the islands. He's been very firm uh, on that. Heronism, books have been written about it, films have been made about it. Peronism, in many ways, is exactly what the Peronists wanted to be at any particular time. You've had extreme left-wing Peronists, revolutionaries who have fought in the prelude to the dictatorship. You've had fairly right-wing libertarian Peronists, Carlos Menem, who sold off much of the country, privatized much of the country, was the instigator of this dollar to piss or link, was a Peronist as well. I think the only thing you can say about it, it's a populist movement. Juan Perón came to power on the back of huge working class support in the late 1940s. And it was those workers, those trade unionists who traditionally uh, have supported him. It is also a party that divides the country. I would say if you're going to do a very generalized um, roundup of Argentina, you would say that half the country are Peronists and the other half are vehemently anti-Peronists. So it is a defining feature uh, of Argentine politics. Millet falls very much into the angry, vehemently anti-Peronist uh, camp. Thank you for that question. Adam, I believe you're going to be the last person who's going to ask a question, so I know it's going to be a good one. Thanks, Royfeld. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, good to see you as well. This is the first. Uh, thank you, Royfeld and Daniel, for the <laughs> the conversation. We meet at last from uh, a relatively warm northern British Columbia. Thank you for the conversation, a question about the executive powers of in Argentina. How much can he do by executive decree without the requirement of support? You mentioned that he, he has an upstart political party uh, who are basically non-existent in the other legislative branches. Things like eliminating the, the central bank. Is this something that he has the powers to do by decree of, as president? Uh, what, what, what's his limitations here? In, in theory, you. he can rule by decree uh, on certain issues. But if he seems to be ruling by decree too often, he then starts to look like the dictator that many uh, fear that he might become or, or that, you know, that he may be. So, yes, he can rule by decree, but I think he would have to choose very carefully uh, which issues uh, he chose to affect by that means. And, so there, and there is a limit. But yes, it's certainly a, a tool in his armory that no doubt he will use. But much better from his perspective, from Argentine politics perspective, if he can push his measures through a Congress. Although, as we've mentioned, he doesn't have the support. He'll be hoping to garner that as far as possible now in these days leading up to him taking office. So he would much prefer that. It would be easier for him to do that. 
Um, but don't forget in Chile, uh, not so long ago, 2019, uh, a, a small item like putting up the fares on the subway in Santiago was what instigated uh, the huge riots that led to um, new constitution being negotiated in Chile, uh, massive conflicts between police and, and demonstrators on the streets. So much of Latin America lives uh, in very um, nervous times, but uh, politically, economically. So sometimes of that nature, something as minor as putting up the, uh, the subway fares can instigate um, huge backlash. So again, he and his advisors, I'm sure, will be very well, very well aware of that. Thank you for that question. Adam, thank you for that answer. Daniel, uh, I think we're, we're at the end of our approximately an, an hour. But Daniel, you work for Al Jazeera. You're a, a professor at London Metropolitan University. I presume you have somewhat of an electronic footprint on, on the interweb. So why don't you tell people, whether it's the people in the Zoom audience or whether it's people watching this on YouTube or people who are downloading the podcast, where they can catch up with your work, sir? YouTube, Al Jazeera, our reports are there. We ran, covered Latin America from the Buenos Aires office. My colleagues continue to do that uh, out of Buenos Aires. One of the few English-speaking foreign companies, media companies, still doing that to the extent that they do. So certainly Al Jazeera around Latin America is, Latin Algeria English is, is one form of staying in touch. For the BBC, I was the BBC correspondent in Latin, in Buenos Aires, also before I joined out as Zira. So again, it's on the edge, the cusp of the kind of social media revolution. So there's a few items out there that I did 10 or 10 or 12 years ago. So yes, it's out there. With if you can see if you can spell my surname correctly, you'll find it. So I believe we got to the end of this hour. We've not mentioned football once. Argentine Pope and the Argentine World Champions, and that does have an influence does on our on Argentine society and Argentine politics to a large degree. I just thought I'd better get that in before we before we go. Uh, we're get, we're going to have to have have you back then uh, to to talk about um, Argentinian culture in, in much more detail. Uh, this has been me, Royfield Brown, with uh, Daniel Schweimler, who has given us a somewhat uh, of a, an insight into the economic and political situation in, in Argentina at the moment. Only time will tell as to whether uh, this anarcho-capitalist, this libertarian president, has got the right prescription for that great nation. You can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com that's r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com and you can berate me or maybe you can just say uh, nice things to me you can do whatever you want in that email and I will read that out one thing you can do though is write us a review on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify that is the best way for me to get new listeners and viewers to the podcast and again, can I just say it is uh, it's my heart filleth up with joy because I have 22 participants on this Zoom call. It's only yesterday that I thought, instead of doing this actually on a Twitter spaces, because I do want the video for this, that I'll actually do this on, on, on YouTube. So I had to do a Zoom recording. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could still have those questions? And to put this out in Clubhouse, this has been brilliant, really has been fantastic to see so many people here who still want to continue to, to participate in Mid-Atlantic even though I don't do them on Clubhouse anymore so thank you for all those people on Clubhouse for being part of this thank you Dominic Guter Briar and Adam for, for your questions but it's really good to see friends like Adil and Wansa etc Andrea just there's so many people actually in the audience I will continue to do this on this platform again 
I've been Royfield Brown. This has been Mid-Atlantic. Don't forget, folks, left of center politics is right thinking politics, but we try not to demonize our right thinking brothers and sisters, but win them over with the strength of our argument. One thing that ha- that we have to dispense with is neoliberal economics, because all it does is exacerbate wealth inequality. And that is a lesson behind Melee. His prescription, I would say, is wrong, but we understand the pain and the anguish of the Argentinian people. Take care, look after yourselves, bye-bye.